Nice, nice to continue in this series. Our hope, we're going to be done with this by summer. Man, what are we going to do? Hey, Chuck, it's good to see you, man. Uh, this, you guys know me well enough. Life in the body. This is just another day, life in the body. Uh, excited to continue our series in Peter. And, and I just want to do some pulling back a second because I feel like sometimes our conviction is we, we around here take these puzzle pieces one week at a time, and we look at these puzzle pieces, and we examine them, and we twist them around, but they actually find themselves as part of a fuller mosaic, a beautiful picture. And so I want to go back to chapter one, where we've been, and just look at a little bit of where Peter has taken us thus far. And so, Tim, you might need to give me, maybe I got a little crazy. Did I lose something here? There we go. Is that me or you? That was you. Okay. So chapter one, just pulling back where Peter has been, uh, because sometimes we get lost in the puzzle piece, right? We get lost in just holding up a single puzzle piece rather than seeing that fuller picture that Peter's been displaying for us in his letter. Peter can't help at the very beginning of his letter just overwhelmingly get excited about what's happening in his salvation, past, present, and future. And then he does something so interesting, struck me in a way that just... Uh, I wrestled, I had a hard time with, he begins giving these commands, and rather than behavior as commands, right, sit down, move here, he says, be hopeful. He commands emotions. When we experience this salvation of life with Jesus, he commands an emotion to erupt within us, which, which could be challenging. How do you command an emotion? Be hopeful, be afraid. And then he shifts in that end of that first section to say that Jesus is our cornerstone. We build our lives upon him. We don't go to church. We are the church that gathers at 752 Netherwood, that the body assembles and we are built together on that chief cornerstone as living stones being built together. And then he makes a turn in chapter 2, 11 to 12, where he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, not as tourists, not as residents who take up habitation, and not as tourists snapping a couple photos, but being so disengaged from the culture around us. No, as sojourners and exiles, live in a way. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And so we find ourselves in this section now, where he's saying, so what does it look like to live with this new identity in this society? To have this new life in society? And sometimes we wonder, wouldn't it just be better if I just disconnected from society? <laughs> and found my ranch off somewhere else and I didn't have to deal with this world we live in? Wouldn't that just be better? And yet Peter challenges his readers, this minority Christian population scattered over modern-day Turkey, to say, no, this is what it looks like to live in this new society. And so we got to hear some instruction. He began with instruction on how do you interact with the government? What does it look like for us to interact with our governing body? And then he gave some instruction to how do you deal with unjust employers? What does it look like to interact? And then he moves, and you can see, if I use the word chiasm, it's all building in that section to our example of Jesus. And then he flows out again and says, so here's some instructions on what it means to submit to an unjust husband. And husbands, here's what it looks like to honor your wives. And then he broadens it back out and says, here are nine. If you remember drinking from a fire hydrant, here are nine characteristics on what it looks like to live in this new society. And then we heard from Tyler last week as Peter continues to develop. What does it look like to live in this new society? Tyler developed last week for us to to live with this reckless abandonment in pursuit of Jesus, to to decompartmentalize your life, to actually have fear that produces fearlessness, right? And, And Tyler developed that idea for us. Now, Peter is continuing and And buckle up if you thought you were in for a ride. Yes, we are in for a ride today. It is going to be a ride, so buckle up. Because this is a tough text, but it's going to be worth it. I think. (laughs) You might be questioning whether it's going to be worth it right now. But 
verse 18 to 22 finds itself sandwiched in between verse 17 and 4 verse 1. Because we're going to read this text and you're going to go, this sounds so strange. What is Peter trying to tell us? If we believe that God actually inspired Peter to write these words, you ever been in a conversation? might happen on Sunday from time to time where you're like, I have no idea what in the world you're talking about. What we're reading this morning, many people feel that way about this text, but we're going to do our best. So between verse 17 and 4 verse 1, there's something taking place. He says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then he develops a thought in verse 18 to 22, and in chapter 4, verse 1, the very following text, it says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we just read that, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So something's happening in verse 18 to 22 that Peter wants us to experience as we live in this new identity in the midst of society. So let's read the text together. And, uh, and, and I think you're in for, you could either say a treat or punishment. One of the two. I think we'll go treat. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What in the world are you talking about, Peter? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism... Baptism, how did you get to baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you? It saves us? Well, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter has an intent. He's got a big idea in there. We're going to try and find it. And here's where I think Peter's taking us today. In this broader section on living, in a, living as, as followers of Jesus in the midst of the society, as children of God, we have this radical outlook on life. When we walk through our Monday to Saturday, we are actually convinced that God is using suffering to bring us joy. And in order to empower us to live out this view of faith, Peter's going to talk about Jesus and he's going to talk about Noah. In order to emphasize that view of this radical view of life that views joy and suffering as colliding and coinciding, he's going to reference Jesus and he's going to talk about Noah. So pray with me as we jump in to the text this morning. God, you're good. We proclaim that. We want to celebrate that. We want to anchor our lives in that. You don't give... <laughs> poor gifts to your kids. Instead, help us understand more fully you are always working for your glory and you've attached our good to that. Help us see your encouragement through Peter as we, as we try to live our life in southern Wisconsin in the 21st century. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to do a little background in order to get into the text. So before we even get into the text, we're going we're gonna to try and unpack this idea of suffering a little bit more. Because in chapter 1, 6, and six to 9, Peter says, you're going to experience trials of various kinds, but you ought to rejoice. Rejoice, though you experience trials of various kinds. And so we walk through a view of the trials that might hit us in life. One is... The disconnect between my abs and where they are and where I'd like them to be, right? And, and I go, Casey's like, I don't actually believe that you should have chiseled abs. I'm like, babe, why not? But no, she's like, I didn't actually say that. I didn't actually say that you should have. But we had a nice discussion. I thought it was funny. But as you grow and mature in life, those various trials actually manifest themselves in a variety of ways, whether that's emotional pain through, through a fractured relationship of some kind. And you feel that, that relational or emotional pain where your kids are making different decisions than you might have desired for them. 
That that's the place you find yourself in that actual state, physical pain. And, and, and the word, the C word, flies across our diagnosis and, and we're filled with that pain. If we get a diagnosis of cancer, there's that physical pain. I think the specific context that Peter's now wrestling with in chapter 3 has more to do with this spiritual pain. He, he was broad in chapter 1, I think in chapter 3, now he's narrowed it to that pain, that spiritual pain, as you share about your hope in Jesus, and, and it appears those around you do not share that same conviction. And so there's this gap that exists between where we find ourselves, our actual state of life, and, and where we'd like to be. I'd love to have chiseled abs. I'd prefer there was not emotional pain in some of those fractured relationships. That would be my desired state. I'd prefer that that diagnosis wasn't true and that physical pain did not exist. And I'd much prefer if when we share about the hope in Jesus, there was an immediate response of, David, these are the words of life I've been waiting for. But there's this gap between my actual state of where I am in my desired state of what I'd like my preferred place to be. What do we call that? There was a guy back in California by the name of Dan Jones who said that gap that exists between our actual state and our desired state is, is a definition for suffering. Now, what would give us confidence that we could rejoice in the midst of our actual state? Why would I have joy in the midst of my actual state today? Because we are convinced that Jesus has not abandoned us. And he's present with us in those circumstances. Peter now is writing to this community that is fractured, this marginalized minority community spread out all over Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, scattered in the Roman Empire, feeling, feeling alone, feeling like God has abandoned them. Peter now writes to those people and he says these words, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Peter, don't you know my life? Don't you know what I'm experiencing in this scattered little dispersion? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It is better for doing good. The way you live your life, Peter's saying, is going to demonstrate to those around you your hope in Jesus. But here's, so here's, here's the typical worldview that we experience in life, right? Suffering comes for all of us. Is that true? So suffering's this universal experience for all of us. And so when we're suffering, there is grief we experience. To varying degrees, there's these emotions that accompany this grief. Sorrow, despair, hopelessness, anguish, gloom, misery, anger, depression, blaming. That there's this pain and it manifests itself in some emotional way. Peter then is saying, here's, here's how the Christian ought to view life. That there is suffering plus something that equals grief and joy. That in the midst of suffering, we can experience grief and joy, not absent from pain, but actually experience joy in the midst of that. Why? Because there is a faith in Jesus that goes beyond the circumstances. It is better to suffer for good if that's God's will, because that's going to display a hope beyond this life. But here's my fear. Though we claim to have faith, it appears our life is marked more with grief with an absence of joy. Then my greater fear in addition to that is that there doesn't seem to be much distinction between our lives that claim we're anchored in Jesus and those that would want nothing to do with faith. Our experience looks fairly similar. Peter then is challenging us to say, there's this beauty that in the midst of suffering, it is better to suffer for good because we have faith that Jesus is present and our lives are marked with grief and joy and even adds one more layer 
a few weeks ago, he added, and it actually leads us to have the ability to bless those who hurt us. I shared this at the end of service. I thought this would be interesting at the beginning instead. You know, I find myself sometimes, though, so caught in my circumstances. I was sitting there feeding Eden just a little earlier, uh, a couple days ago, and uh, one of my kids comes in, and I said, oh, hey, look, your sister is greeting her sisters and brother. One of my kids goes, what, sisters and brother? I said, that's what I said. No, you didn't. And it's in that point I go, do do I want to pick this fight right now? The answer, absolutely. Every single time I'm picking that fight. Now then you'd go, that's probably not the wisest thing to do. We get so caught up in our circumstances, rather than actually respond with this ability to bless those who hurt us, our tendency is to fight, right? And so Peter now is writing to these guys And he's writing in verse 18 to 22 to have this confidence on how we might live in this society. And he's going to give us two examples. Now, here's the challenge. In this text, here's what Martin Luther says about the text we're about to get into this morning. Here's what Martin Luther says. He says, this is a strange and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Martin Luther, this was like one of the most dogmatic guys who ever lived. It was either this or that to Martin Luther. And what he's saying about the text we're going to wrestle with this morning, it is the most complicated, frustrating for him about how to solve it in all of the New Testament. So I want you guys to hear from Steve Pulley here in a second as we jump in. Steve, would you come on up here? (laughs) It's good to see you, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in case you didn't hear that. (laughs) Yeah, I got to get my So, So Steve, before you share, why don't you just tell us uh, who you are and a little bit of your connection around here. Um, well, I play bass sometimes, sometimes on the congas. <laughs> uh, you see my kids run around spraying the old plastic chairs, which we don't have to do anymore, which is nice. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of... Part of the worship of, team around yeah. here, been yeah. invested. Seven kids. Hmm? Seven kids. Eight. 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 Yeah. <laughs> the nest yeah, was uh, full. It's just like Ruth says, it's better to have seven sons. You know, in the book of Ruth. And so you and I, so Steve and I could geek out about this stuff. So, so, I'm, so as we jump into this text, there was no other guy I thought of than Steve to encourage us. Because give us a little encouragement on why, why reading, just in general, why reading the Bible, why our methodology around here matters to you. Well, it matters to me because I, I kind of grew up in Eastern mysticism and the occult. Um, so there were many Hindu and New Age kind of scriptures uh, each had their own competing systems, all right? Truth really wasn't attainable. It was subjective, and it was largely experience-based. So when I became a Christian, I kind of clung to John 17, 17. And sorry if I KJV this. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Without that basis, there's not a lot to go on. Surely not in the occult or Eastern mysticism. Mm. So. Mm. It's, the word is objective, and it's eternal, not like all that other stuff I was mm. into. So if we believe that, yeah. right, if we're convinced of that reality, we want to be biblically saturated. I mean, what do you do when you get to complicated texts like what we're going to jump in today when it, when it just feels a little overwhelming? Well, I figure if, if it says thy word is truth, then that means all the word, especially the difficult parts. Matter of fact, my, one of my mottos is if it's strange, it's probably important. All right. <laughs> Hard teachings in the Bible aren't new. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's writings as hard to understand. Now, Peter and Paul were contemporaries. They spoke the same language, had the same culture, lived at roughly the same time. How much more difficult then is it for us, who are separated by language, culture, a millennia, to get some of this stuff right? Some of this stuff is going to be kind of hard. Um, the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us. All right? It's important to know the audience that the writer had who he's speaking to. 
In some cases, it was Jew or Gentile, or it was unsaved or saved, or sometimes it was bond or free. In Pentecost, it seems like they were talking to everybody. It all depends. Now, as an example of this, putting yourself in, in kind of what they were thinking of at the time, just take this as an example of just a question. How would a modern and an ancient person, first century person, think of this question? Why is there evil in the world? Right? You have unsaved people come up to you, they go, gee, Steve, or why is there evil in the world? Well, a modern view of rebellion would be this. Well, Genesis 3, the fall, that was the introduction of sin and death, right? Well, the first century Christian and Jew wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that was incomplete. They'd kind of give Eve a little break, all right? They'd say it wasn't just the fall in Genesis 3. They'd say the Genesis 6 corruption of the watchers or the sons of God that saw that the daughters of men were fair. Remember that? They'd also say that Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, all three of those were rebellions. As a matter of fact, in their, in their prophetic and messianic, they're expecting the Messiah to come and reverse all three. That is the preferred state, like you were saying in Europe. Mm -hmm. So they had that expectation. In this chapter and section we're talking about now, that's strange. First off, he's, he's tackling it, which is gutsy. I've had pastors that literally skip it. All right. Peter alludes to the Genesis 6 rebellion, all right, or the resulting spirits in prison. Now, I'm going to be referring to something that I think to them was common knowledge. All right. Peter doesn't explain that. That's part of the strange parts of this verse. He just comes out and says it. He just assumes his readers knows what, what you're talking about. Paul, if he introduced something strange that he doesn't think he's like on Mars Hill, he'll take a whole chapter and explain it to him. But that's kind of interesting. First, I believe Peter was referring to the story in the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's non-canonical, except in the Ethiopian church. But it has a story in there. In Genesis 6, the sons of God, or as Enoch refers to them as the watchers, they are all kind of messed off because they're now they're, they're spirits in prison. They've, they've been condemned. And they say, hey, you know, Enoch walked with God. He walked with God, and then he was not. He didn't die. He's got it in with God. Let's appeal to Enoch. And we'll see if we can't get some leniency in this prison sentence we've been given. So they appeal to Enoch. Enoch listens to their appeal, brings it to Yahweh, God the Father. And he says, no way. They're in prison for good reason. And he, and he basically never, therefore, shall you, the spirits in prison, obtain peace. Hmm. All right. So Enoch takes God's response, takes it back down to the spirits in prison, and um, says, hey, no, sorry, God says you're exactly where you're supposed to be, and, and that's how it was. So it was sort of a, Enoch going to, and descending and to proclaim this truth is kind of what Peter's kind of referring to, because he knows his readers are going to know that story. So, so, I mean, you and I could geek over that for hours on end. We probably will <laughs> later. But I go, if, if we might feel or get overwhelmed by that, what, what do you encourage us that still helps us see that even this pursuit is relevant for our lives? Well, it gives us hope um, because uh, the Messiah is going to change this to the preferred state. The other thing is that it's, um, there's lots of contemporary and competing truths, doctrines mm -hmm. these days, right? In Matthew 24, 37, Matthew suggests that as in the days of Noah... It's a sign of the times pointing to the coming of the Son of Man that there's going to be all kinds of people say, with competing truths. Saturating yourself in the Word sanctifies, just like John 17, 17 says. It sets you apart for holy service. Believers with a firm foundation. Not this experiential-based stuff, not the Eastern mysticism I was in. It empowers believers with the discernment of evil and it provides a hedge of protection. I think it's part of this that Peter is, it's a sort of warning. Without this anchor of truth, you're carried about by every wind of doctrine. Yeah, so we're going to make an effort today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And if you want to talk to Steve after the service about you heard him give one of the interpretations we're going to wrestle with, you, you, I'm sure he would love to hear from you. But Because <laughs> here's... A, because here's our conviction around here, right? That we actually believe God wrote a book, and so we want to increasingly move to not just hear someone else interpret, but we, we want to open the text together for us every Sunday and increasingly move to become these firsthanders hearing from God for ourselves. So 
that big idea. We could get lost in the details. We're still going to try, but we don't want to get lost in those details. Instead, I think here is the big idea that Peter is, is moving us towards. And it is this idea that as children of God, we have a radical outlook on life. That equation that we developed, we're going to see that play out. That we are convinced that God uses suffering to bring us joy in order to empower us to live out our faith. And Peter lifts up Jesus and Noah as examples of how that would work. So here we go. You guys ready? Jesus and Noah. Here we go. So this suffering plus faith equals grief and joy and actually leads to an ability to bless those who hurt us. Here's what it looks like in Jesus' life, this idea of suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Peter told us this earlier in chapter 2, and we're going to skip to 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die. There's a chance. We'll see. How long is he going to make it for, babe? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. We're, we're not going to complete, we're not going to argue that Jesus suffered. And was it a reflection of his faith? We see Jesus praying in the garden. In Matthew, here's how Matthew records it in verse 38. Then he said to them, his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his faith and pray, face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, if there's any other way, if there's another way that I don't have to go to the cross and suffer and die for, for the redemption of humanity, if there's another way, but if there's not, I want to entrust my soul to you, right? My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There was this faith in the Father demonstrated by Jesus and not absent from grief. Luke records for us, and if you've ever seen the passion, the opening scene, you see these drops falling on a rock as Jesus prayed. Here's how Luke records it. And he withdrew for them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There was grief associated what was taking place in Jesus' life. Peter is putting Jesus up as an example for how we might be experiencing life in society. And so they're suffering faith, grief, but not absent from joy. This is how the author of Hebrews records it. He says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance. Why? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, not in the cross, but the joy in submitting to his father, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That there was suffering with faith in God's will that led to grief, but also joy in the act and an ability to actually bless those. And we see that back in this specific text. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So, so what is Peter hoping we might feel or experience when we hear these words of Jesus? Where does your head tend to go when something bad happens to you? Where, where, where does your mind go when you're experiencing suffering of various kinds? Well, where, where does your mind tend to lead you? And how much do we see this example of Jesus in the way it affects our life and gives us hope and endurance? Is it inconsequential and I just go through my life and I'm not thinking about the sufferings of Jesus at all? I'm just binge-watching Netflix and I'm going to my favorite coffee shop and the crucifixion has nothing to do with my life. Or is there a weight that Peter intends us to hear as we experience our challenges in life and see Jesus as an example 
to inspire us on how we ought to live in this society, for it is better to suffer for doing good. But now, as he continues his argument, we might go, okay, I can get that. Peter continues his argument and says, but being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He now is going to try and inspire us with Noah. In Noah's life, in how it would lead us to actually have deep confidence when we interact with those that want nothing to do with Jesus. Here's what he says. He says four things, and we're going to try and go, Peter, what are you talking about? That put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now here are are the four questions that we'd want to ask And just a reminder, I mean, this this is the fascinating stuff. You guys remember you pay me to do this, right? Is this fascinating? I mean, I'm like, is there any other job in the world that is better than being a pastor? I submit that there is not. But wrestling through, here's the four questions that we would wrestle with when trying to answer. Peter, what are you trying to tell us about Noah's life that would encourage us? So somehow Jesus went somewhere. So when did he go? Where exactly did he go? To whom did he speak? And what in the world did he say? And so, as we walk through it, here's the three primary positions. Here's the three general positions that that people hold, and you heard Steve allude to one of them, that one, Christ is, is going to proclaim through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. There's the possibility, and this might be a familiar in Latin, the descensus ad inferos, right? The descent into hell. The Old Testament saints who died and were liberated. Now, where'd they go? To, to this Sheol, Sheol in Hades. They went, and then Jesus ran. Did anybody care about this stuff? You, you can tune out for like five minutes, and then I'll wake you up when we get back into the text. But Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. And some people interpret to say Jesus descended to hell and, and, and rescued these saints. Or third, the triumph of Christ over the powers. And you heard Steve, alluded, Steve alluding to this interpretation. The text describes Jesus' proclamation of victory and judgment over these evil angels from Genesis 6. So, first, what, when? When did Christ go? Was it in the days of Noah? Was it literally in the days of Noah? Was it between his death and resurrection, or was it after his ascension, after his resurrection? So here's where we go. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what spirit is being made alive? It appears that's alluding to his resurrection, in which he went. So when did he go? So he goes somewhere. When when did he go? What exactly is that timeline? And then we go, but so we understand he goes somewhere. Where? Where did he go? Did he go to the days of Noah, right? Transcendent over time, he goes to the days of Noah. Does he go to this holding place, Hades, Sheol? Or is he already ascended into heaven? Where did he go? And we see, so being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and went, some people, this is why we we use the ESV. This is just one little, little, little tidbit why we use the ESV. Other interpretations will say he descended and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So he goes somewhere, he went, and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so we... ESV doesn't interpret descend, but rather is using a broad term went more like ascension. After after being put to death, made alive in the spirit, ascends and proclaims to the spirit in prison. And so then, who are they? Who are those spirits in prison? To whom did he speak? Were, Were they unbelievers who have died? 
Are these Old Testament believers who have died and have been held captive and now are being ransomed? Or are these fallen angels? We've got about two more minutes. Just stick with it another two minutes, then we're going back. And then, what exactly did he proclaim? I mean, I just think I love this stuff, right? Just being, being brought to the limit of your understanding and going, God, I don't understand this, and I just want to continue to pursue an understanding of you through your word. So what did he say? Was this a second chance of repentance? Was this a completion of redemptive work? Or was this a final condemnation that was proclaimed to the spirits in prison? So proclaimed. Often we use euangelion. This is, this is the good news. This is proclaiming the good news that sets captive free. But instead, Peter uses a much more generic term, which could lead us to believe he's proclaiming judgment to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. And so we're left here and I go, which of these three? I don't know. I, but I, I'm, I'm confident, just like Steve said, we want to press in because there is a worthy value of pressing in and saying, God, we understand that there's a big idea and big ideas are more important than these little ideas. This little idea where did Jesus go and proclaim is tied to something bigger. What's it tied to? He's putting up Noah as an example for us to follow to this marginalized, disenfranchised community spread out all over Rome. And he's saying, follow what's going on in Noah's day. Now, what was going on in Noah's day? Because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited. And the ark was being prepared. You guys remember the story of Noah? It's about 120 years this guy was commissioned to build an ark. And God's patience waited during this time. Now can you just imagine, this guy shows up and God says, I want you to build this boat. Noah goes, what's a boat? Well, a boat is kind of a house that floats on water. And, and, and then it's going to rain. Well, well, what's rain? Scholars say it's, it's never even rained at this time in life, right? Well, what's rain? Well, it's kind of that water that you see, Noah. I'm going to take that and I'm going to dump it on you. Okay, so, so, so who, who's going to build this? You got a couple sons, just rally them and, and get it done. So for 120 years, Noah suffered. And in what way did he suffer? Here's what, here's what Peter says, and then we're going to look at Genesis 6. Because they formally did not obey. So Noah's in this culture where it appears so antagonistic to the gospel, so antagonistic to following God, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, here's how the author of Genesis speaks to that time. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You ever feel like you're, you just think, I'm just going to leave society. I'm kind of I'm tired of dealing with the circumstances. Masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, Democrats or Republic, I'm just tired of it. And for 120 years, this is what the author, this is what Peter tells us Noah did. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Noah, year in, year out, built this ark, and what did he do? Proclaimed repentance and faith in this God. Does Noah have any relevance for our life today? So Noah, this suffering plus faith. Here's what Genesis says. So Noah did this. He did all that God commanded, 120 years. Lived a little bit longer. Can you imagine the birthday cake? You know, Noah gets, thing gets rolled out. Just, <sighs> you guys are like, sometimes you're like, David, just keep the ideas that are in your head. 
in your head. So Noah did all this, did all that he was commanded, and Noah did all that he was commanded, building this battleship of a boat. And there was grief and there was joy in the midst of that. Here's how the author of Hebrews records it. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The grief to look around and it appears there was no movement. Instead, ridiculed year after year for the perspective that he held. I mean, where'd they get the wood? Like, what, he's going up to like the Northwest to chop some things down. I mean, they're in a desert, right? Where's he going? Peter says this. So, G, so God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Does it feel like God's abandoned you in your circumstance? Does it feel like it's just you and, and, and God is unaware of the events and the circumstances in your life? Eight people. Eight people. And so here's the correlation. We're brought safely through by water. He shifts now. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Doesn't save you in the sense that this practice, the Catholics have that practice, this papal, it's the right person and the right time and the right way, and that does something for salvation. Protestants don't believe that. Instead, Peter quickly changes that and says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is what saves us. We're banking our life as these marginalized communities all across Rome are looking at their life going, has God forgotten us? And so Darian Lockett has these six ideas that resonated with me. So this is a professor of mine at Biola, and he walked through Peter's reader's understanding of what's going on in the days of Noah. And I think you were waiting for relevance. We have arrived. Here's about six ideas that might, there's a chance, land on where we find ourselves today. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile people that had yet to believe. Peter's readers found themselves there. They're looking around and they're seeing people make choices that are so contrary to faith in Jesus and hope in Jesus. Do we believe that about our circumstances? We feel like we're moving there. And Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in the midst of a wicked group of people that have yet to treasure Jesus. And you see how I keep phrasing it? These are Darian Lockett's words. I tend to be positive. I'm just a positive half glass full, so you guys hear how I keep rephrasing some of that language? I'm always positive with the possibility, just like we heard at Easter, no one is too far gone. We heard from Ed in the, in the story of the John's family. Now, I'm praying, right? People yet to treasure Jesus. But Noah was righteous, a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness for 120 years. <laughs> Whoa. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him by believing God and building the ark. Peter encourages his readers to be good witnesses to unbelievers around them. I mean, you, you, I wonder what it feels like bold is. I mean, you just turn to like page one, right? You just turn to page one. Right? It, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hold on, David. It, I don't know about that, David. And then page one continues, and, and he made them man and woman. Now, hold on, David. I'm, I'm not sure I'm there with you, David. And you just keep going. And, and they're supposed to stay together, and it's the two of them rallying and going through life. Now, David, I'm not sure about that. That doesn't sound like too fun. You want this ball and change just anchoring my life? That sounds terrible. No witness boldly. That's page one. <laughs> you guys are like... David, I got lunch plans. Can we just hurry this up a little bit? No witness boldly to those around him. 
Peter encourages his readers to be good witnesses to the yet to believe around them. And Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. Peter reminds his readers that God's judgment is certainly coming, perhaps soon. I mean, that's a butterfly and rainbows that we want to hear about, right? And yet, there's the reality for Noah that judgment came by water. So too will judgment come by fire. And, and Noah was carried safely through. The conviction, those that find their hope and anchor in the resurrection of Jesus are carried safely through despite the circumstances around us. Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. Peter reminds his readers, God's judgment is certainly coming soon. And at the time of Noah, God patiently waited for repentance from those yet to believe before he brought judgment. So it is also in the situation of Peter's readers. And we believe there is a patient God, long-suffering God, who wants no one to perish. That this is the most inclusive message that could ever be. Jesus sits on the throne of your heart no matter what you've done. No matter what baggage or brokenness or hurt you're carrying. It is hope in Jesus. What a message. And God patiently desires all to come to that understanding. And Noah was finally saved with only a few others. Peter thus encourages his readers. These people spread out all across Turkey in these minor little pockets, wondering, has God forsaken me? Has God forgotten about me? Instead, Peter encourages his readers. They too will certainly finally be saved for Christ has triumphed and all things are subject to him. There's the message we want to keep proclaiming, right? That's the mission that we want to hold here at Hillcrest this hope in Jesus. Well, David, do we wear, do we wear masks or no masks? Yeah, you know, Jesus relates to both of those groups. Well, well what about Democrats or Republicans? We, we need to speak more politically. Well, we think Jesus came to save both. It's not this right versus wrong, and, and I'm in the greater group. It's actually we're all kind of on degrees of wrong, and, and Jesus is the one that anchors and saves our life. So, so what's that actually look like? Here's my encouragement for some takeaways. They were brought safely through. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. So we want to continue to anchor our lives around here in this person and work of Jesus. So this week, three takeaways for you. First, I don't know what your Monday to Saturday is going to look like. I don't know who you're going to interact with. Here's my hope. I want to wake up to the situations that God has for me. I was on the plane. I was at California. I'm in this, uh, this cohort of other pastors, some buddies back in California. And, uh, and God, God, what are you inviting me into today? I'm sitting on the plane. I often pray up the seat next to me when I'm sitting on the plane. Dear Jesus, help who's ever sitting on the plane next to me, right? But I start talking to Muhammad. And there's a frog in my throat about, about talking to him about Jesus, right? I just want to be prayed up to say, God, what are you inviting me into? I was unprepared for Muhammad to be in my life sitting there to have a discussion. And so instead, I let the situation pass. God, help give me more confidence to see that you're at work all around me. And I just want to join you in what you're doing every single day of my life. God, what are you inviting me into this week? And then I don't know where you find yourself on this equation of suffering plus faith equals grief and joy that actually leads to an ability to bless others that is this beautiful expression of evangelism in, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom. This is God's designed vehicle. I don't know if you're in that place where suffering is just overwhelming and you, you cannot think beyond the situation that's right in front of you. I don't know if faith needs to be encouraged as Jesus prayed, not my will but your be done. God, I want to believe more fully that you haven't forgotten me, that you're with me, you're present with me, that, that, that you are walking step by step and you are there every moment of every day. Or grief. It's not an absence of grief, right? It's not an absence of pain. I, I don't know if for you, you need to actually embrace some of the brokenness or hurt that exists around you because you've been stuffing it or pushing it away or, or, or the Midwest nice of saying it doesn't exist. I, I don't know if, it's the, if the grief just needs to become more real. 
or in the midst of the grief, say, Jesus, you are better and I want more of you. And there's joy that leads to an ability to bless those who might hurt you. And last, I can't think of a more profound verse. If you, if you memorize, if you don't memorize, I would encourage you to memorize this verse. I think there's no more succinct verse in the, in the Bible, in, in the New Testament, about the gospel. That for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's no more profound truth for our life than this. You heard me arguing with one of my kids earlier this week. When those things happen, there's nothing more important than that situation that's staring me in the face and I'm so consumed by it. Then I lift my eyes and hear, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Yeah, but do you know all the sins of everybody else around me? I mean, I'm a pretty good guy, right? I mean, it's all their fault, right? It's all the people around me. And yet there's this sin that, that is filling my heart and my life. And Christ suffered for those sins. The righteous, the perfect lamb, the righteous one suffered on behalf of the unrighteous. To accomplish what? What did that achieve? To bring us to God. There's no more profound truth for my life. I get caught up in all the things that clamor for my attention. The bills, the car, the entertainment. For Christ also suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. There is no more profound truth in the cosmos than that reality. That is what life is about, and that is what we at Hillcrest want to continue to anchor our lives in. Pray with me. God, you're so, so faithful to the unrighteous. You, you, you pursue and you love and you lavish your grace in the midst of us just spurning you. The perfect lamb reconciling us broken sinners before you. There's no greater truth for our life than that. Help us embrace that, memorize that, and live that out with great joy in the midst of pain, believing that that there's no greater, according to Peter, evangelistic strategy than Christians desperately following you in the midst of pain, demonstrating that joy. So help us live that out a little bit more fully this week. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.